All right, well, let's pray and we'll jump into Christology. It'll be good. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the things that we learned about in theology proper, that there is one God and um, all of your, your attributes, God, that you are holy, you are just, you are merciful, you are omniscient, omnipresent, all the things that that describe who you are and the God that we worship. And, and pray that as we look at Christ, that you would remind us that those attributes are just as much uh, attributable to, to Jesus. Um, help us as we open up your word to, to make sense of theology, to understand you better, to understand ourselves better in that light, um, and to worship you for it, and just to be in awe of who you are and the way that, um, that you have manifested yourself to us. God, we thank you for your truth, that you've preserved it for us, that you've communicated that to us through your Holy Spirit, and pray once again that you would help us to uh, understand and to be in awe of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so to catch up, what are the three words that we want to understand when talking about the Trinity? Singularity, plurality, and equality. Um, somebody describe plurality to me. We talk about the plurality of God. What do we mean? That there are three distinct persons in, in God. In three distinct God. persons. All right. The other day, we were watching some outdoorsy show with Bear Grylls, and Hudson came up and asked Brittany and said, um, hey, Mom, is, is God or Jesus more important to um, How would we answer that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what we told him. But. Yep. Well, we start by saying it's more important, not more <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Correct his grammar before we correct his theology. <laughs> yeah, so we want to highlight uh, the equality of God and the plurality of God, and again, the, the singularity. So all three of those aspects really come into play when explaining the Trinity even to a five-year-old. Um, and I think our, our five-year-olds or our little kids can understand more than we often give them credit for. And we need to remember that, too. They... Um, are getting the foundation of their theology even now. And a lot of people that, that we know who are a lot older than five years old don't have that foundation either. Um, little Hudson could have more of a theological understanding of the Trinity than many people who are 10 times his age. And so uh, those three aspects are vital to explaining the Trinity. Jesus is one in substance with the Father, but he's distinguished as a person of the Godhead. Um, so, again, all these different attributes, all the different things that we're going to be looking at um, for Christ, or that we did look at for God, the one being of God, are going to apply to the person of Christ. Um, and we'll see some some variation in the roles. We've talked about distinction and the roles of the three persons of the Trinity before, and that's going to start come out a little bit as we look at the person of Christ. Name some First Testament passages that speak of Jesus as the Messiah. Any you guys can think of? Isaiah 9. All right. Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah 9? 
Probably six is where you. It's the Christmas. Christmas ones. Um, Christmas. Rentos is boring. Uh, Rentos child. The child is boring. Yeah. Yeah. And the government will rest on his shoulders, right? And he will be called Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I got that all backwards, but no, just, just the first. Just the first one. Is it Psalm 22? Also? Gotcha. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Yeah. Psalm 2. Yeah, we'll look at that a little bit today. Isaiah 6. Yes, we'll look at that one too. It's a good one in conjunction with John 12. Psalm 45, Psalm 110. <laughs> there are a bunch of them. So let's get in. Let's start looking at some of those. Um, before we do, let's look at the, the names of God in the Old Testament. Remember, there are three primary names that we see in the Old Testament. Did I go backwards? You sure did. I sure did. Or something happened. Something Uh-oh. is happening. <laughs> Yeah, it's working okay on here. It's just not projecting like I want it to. So we got this nice new TV. That's it's a not working. Slides issue. Don't like the TV. <laughs> huh? Were you trying to say it's the TV? It's the operator, not the TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Operator. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Leroy's call me out. <laughs> All right. So first name of God, the his unique name, his covenant name is Yahweh. It's translated Jehovah. It's just taking Yahweh and Adonai and adding the vowels from Adonai to Yahweh to get Jehovah. Um, And it's translated Lord, all caps in our English Bibles. And you see up there it's used over 6,000 times in in the Hebrew Old Testament. Elohim um, has a, a plural meaning to it. So it comes from El, which means God, and then... Uh, has a, a plural ending on it, and it can be translated God. It can be speaking about angels, about uh, rulers, but often, most often, we'll see it speaking about God. We see that 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And Adonai is a different word meaning God or master or Lord and is used often when speaking with the Gentiles 450 times in the Old Testament. So Yahweh, his covenant name, Elohim, uh, more general and lends itself to plurality. And Adonai, um, speaking of him as master or lord. You might get yeah, back. All right. That's a lot of people right now. That is quite a bit. Yep. There's some cool places, and I think there's at least two places in the Old Testament. I'm thinking Jonah was one of them when... God uses his name Yahweh, and then, like with the Ninevites, it switched to Adam or something like that. And I might be remembering it wrong, it might not be Jonah, but there, there are certain places in scripture in the narrative where he's using the term Yahweh and Elohim in reference to himself when he's talking to Israel or an Israelite. And then in that same narrative, it switches to Adam. In that same context, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's what interesting. About, um, what about Deuteronomy 6? 
That's Yahweh or Adonai, right? Elohim. Or Elohim. Yeah. And that's one thing that's nice about the way that they translate. Um, So Adonai would be Lord, just uppercase L, and then lowercase O-R-D. And then Elohim is usually translated God. So, yeah, it's... um, Hero Israel, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, Yahweh is our God. The Lord, again, Yahweh, is one. So Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. It is Jonah, um, Jonah chapter 3, where you see that change. It's pretty interesting. Yeah? Are you pulling that up? Or? Yeah, I just have it on my phone. I was just looking. Or, okay. Cool. All right, let's look at Christology, the study of Christ. Christ is a Greek form of the Hebrew concept of Messiah. It literally means anointed one or set apart one. Thus, Jesus can be called Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, or Jesus the anointed one. So Messiah is um, it's what the Hebrew people were looking for. They were looking for Messiah. And when... Jesus is called the Christ, so he's being recognized as the Messiah. Um, it's not his last name. The Jews understood Yahweh to be the sending, to be sending the Messiah into the world. And so oftentimes um, in first century, people were known by what they did or by their parents. Um, you have James, the, the son of Alphaeus, right? So he's not James last name, but James the son of Alphaeus, or uh, Simon the Zealot, he was known for what he did, or his political activism, I guess, and Jesus is known as the Christ, although not very publicly. Um, When Peter was asked, well, who do people say that I am? He said, well, some say you're the prophet, or some John the Baptist. So he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the carpenter, um, but to those who knew his true identity and who he revealed himself to, he was Jesus the Christ, and that in reality is who he is. He is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the set-apart one. All right, give you a second. Was that not part of this part? Was that not part of this little yeah. sheet? Yeah, just Messiah or anointed one is who the Christ is talking about. That's the meaning of the word Christ. Yeah, there is no Hebrew word. You have the, the Hebrew concept. It's just always it's just about the one who is coming. He was never given a, a specific word label as Messiah in the Old Testament. Psalm uh, two. Yeah, they've said against the Lord and His anointed. Yeah, so Messiah was... There was no... I mean, we, you have Christ all through the Greek, but you don't have a similar... It's Psalm 2. Yeah, but it's not scattered throughout the Old Testament. Right? It's, it's, the concept is there, but it's never distilled down to the term the Messiah. When the Messiah oh. comes, like they say in the movies, when the Messiah comes... The, yeah. the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. So it could say it's a Greek form of the Hebrew word, Messiah. That would be better. Okay, thank you. That's what I was getting at. Okay. Form of the Hebrew word. word. 
for anointing. That's what it should say. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. I should make a note to change that. Yeah. All right. So yes, the word and the concept are both there. Um, and uh, Christ is the New Testament Greek equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament. All right. We're going to look at some titles of Christ today. Again, it should cause us to to worship because these are pretty cool. Um, you have these on your left side. A couple of them are missing, so you can go ahead and copy the, the other ones down that you don't have on there. So, titles of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Son of David, Lord, Firstborn, and Alpha and Omega, which is probably my favorite, but it's kind of hard to have a favorite. They're all pretty cool. All right, we'll get into those one at a time. Yes, okay. Yeah, well, we'll get into the first half today. I'm not sure if we'll get past Son of God or not. We'll, we'll see how far we get. Um, what? There's a, on the handout, there's one row too few. Mm-hmm. Oh. Sorry. Son of God is pretty big. Maybe you can squeeze something in there. There you go. Or at the bottom. Get creative, guys. We'll figure it out. I know. Again, we're probably not going to get through all of them today, so we can flip it over if we need to. All right. So Jesus, Yeshua or Joshua in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and Jesus or Jesus in the Greek. Um, I saw somebody with a picture not long ago standing out on the side of the road. And the sign said, like, underneath their table, that you're not more holy because you pronounce Jesus' name Yeshua. Prove me wrong. Um, Which is pretty cool. Because a lot of people do that. Um, They Maybe they don't outright say that they're more holy because they pronounce it Yeshua. But they insist on pronouncing Jesus' name as Yeshua. And they get tied into a bunch of Old Testament Hebrew roots type stuff. Um, Again, same concept as Messiah being the Christ in Greek, um, Jesus, it's okay if we call him Jesus. If you are from south of the border, Jesus, it's not, there's, while there is power in the name of Jesus, it's not the way that we pronounce his name. It is who he is. He is. The way we pronounce Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, again, some people yeah, seem to think that. Like, they insist on saying Yeshua um, or, or Yahweh, and there is... Um, benefit in distinguishing Yahweh from Elohim and Adonai as we have, but to insist on calling Jesus' name Yeshua is unfounded. All right, so again, it's just Hebrew and Greek, same same name. Um, it means Yahweh saves, directly connecting Jesus with the Father's plan of redemption. That is what Jesus means, his, his name, um, or Joshua in the Old Testament. Um, same thing. Yahweh saves. All right, let's look up these passages. Um, can I get a person to take each one of those passages? I'll take Matthew 1. All right. And then Luke 1, 30 through 33. Who's got that one? We got Luke. Okay. And I can grab Acts 4, 11 and 12. So remember, we're looking at Jesus and his name that... Um, is unique and planned out even before his birth. 
All right, go ahead and read them whenever you got them. So when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary, his wife. They kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, so two times in that passage, his name was mentioned in a, a particular way as doing something or being that specific name for a specific reason. Did you guys catch what they were? His name is Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins, right? Again, Yahweh saves. So his name means salvation. Uh, that was his purpose. That was what he came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. And then towards the end, um, he shall be called what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So he shall save his people from his sins, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, even in the name of our Messiah, of our Christ, we see the fact that he is our, our Savior. Savior and Christ are used often uh, together. Um, over two dozen times you'll see Savior and, and Christ used in that same same verse. Um, Andy, you have Luke 1, 30 through 33? Yep. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. All right, and there we have a, an added aspect to his incarnation. What do we see there that we didn't see in Matthew? Ruling and reigning? Yeah, ruling and reigning. He's going to be uh, seated on the throne of his father David forever, right? And again, we go back to um, the attributes of God that we, we looked at, that he will reign over the house of David forever. His kingdom will have no end. Um, what attribute is in view there? At least one. And we see his sovereignty, right? That he is in control of all things. He has authority over all things. Um, we also see his eternality mentioned. How can he rule forever and have a kingdom that has no end if he himself is prone to have an end? If he isn't eternal but um, mortal. All right. And then Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And says, he... Well, I'll go back to... Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He, that is Jesus Christ, Nazarene, is a stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's a cool passage on so many different levels. Just the boldness that uh, Peter and John had to stand up and say, no, you crucified this man, this man who alone has the power to save in his name. There's salvation in nobody else, and you killed him. Um, He is the Christ. He is the stone which was rejected by you, and now he's the chief cornerstone. Um, Pretty cool. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which... Anybody can be saved. Thoughts or questions on Jesus before we move on to Son of God? <clears throat> All right. Oh, uh, we are lagging again. Maybe I shouldn't go back anymore, huh? Have you studied what it means to be the cornerstone? Uh, Peter has quite a bit to say about that, and he has some wordplay on the cornerstone. Uh, so... Jesus is the the central block. Uh, you think of architecture and how a building has one cornerstone. Based on that, the whole building is put up. And the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. So Jesus himself is a cornerstone. Foundation is the apostles and prophets. No man has to build on another man's foundation. Um, and a foundation is laid once. So we're not to look for any more apostles or prophets, as some are, are prone to do. Um, and we have the body of Christ, the church, the, the building of the church, um, which is a, a picture of the universal church uh, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, of which Jesus himself is a cornerstone. So. When they built, they laid the cornerstone, and everything else was measured in reference to that, that yeah. cornerstone. You know, today we have all kinds of but then they they laid the cornerstone, and that was that was the basis for all their measurements. Everything started with that stone, and they looked for one that was I don't know what exactly to look for, but they wanted almost perfectly yeah. uh, shaped. You don't just pick any stone for the cornerstone. So, yeah, they wanted one that was shaped just right for when they measured off of it. All the measurements would be accurate. Yeah. To that. But it was the. Today we do surveys and all the, all the other, you know, um, we get our lasers and, and lasers and all this stuff. But back then, that's they laid a cornerstone on everything. All the measurements, the altitude, width, and breadth, everything came off of that one stone. Yeah. That's ginormous. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's only one under heaven. All right. There we go. Son of God. Non-literal. That's important, right? Especially around here. So um, there are several quotes by uh, Joseph Smith and others that say that Jesus was born in the natural way, just as any other man or or woman has ever been born. Um, That is unbiblical. Um, so when we speak of the Son of God, he wasn't literally birthed by uh, the Father copulating with Mary. Um, it's a name given based on rank and status. It is descriptive of the function within the Godhead. Um, even when we were looking at those last few passages in Matthew 1 and, and Luke 1, the Holy Spirit indwelt Mary, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. 
and named him Jesus. So not a literal son of God. This title is tied to the concept of Jesus being begotten by the Father. This is a very scriptural concept, but it must be understood. All right. Gano, translated, uh, means begotten, means to bring forth. It's only used three times of Christ, and all refer back to Psalm 2-7. So we mentioned Psalm 2 is one of the Old Testament appearances of that word and title Messiah or anointed one and that's where this word um, gano or, or monogano is going to come from um, going back to, to Psalm chapter 2. We have to understand the way that it's used in Psalm 2 to understand that um, the way that it's used of Jesus so we can't take and imply a, or import a, a new meaning that wasn't first intended back in Psalm chapter 2. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 2 and we'll take a look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, <laughs> Jerome. And the Psalms are like, uh, what are they? Our, our books are using hymns, yes. So. All right, so everybody turn to Psalm 2. Jeremy, you can turn to Psalm chapter 2. Um, <laughs> I don't have that in my book. <laughs> All right, uh, Jeremy, why don't you read? first nine verses for us, and then we'll jump to those other passages up there. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah, or anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. All right. That is a cool passage. Um, and reading that passage kind of helps us understand how the Jews were kind of led astray, maybe. Not led astray. That's terrible wording. Um, they were <laughs> misguided just as bad. Um, they didn't see Jesus as Messiah when he came because they were looking for somebody who was going to reign and rule with an iron fist. Um, and that will happen, but they were misunderstood in their identification of the Messiah because they weren't looking for a suffering servant necessarily. Yeah, they weren't permitted to see him as he was. And that yeah. was the problem was that they were unwilling to change. Because yeah. we all have errors in our theology about the future, and we just have to be willing to accept it. Yeah, that's why we need to hold loosely to our eschatology, um, a lot looser than any of the other areas of theology that we study, because um, the character of God, the nature of God, that's unchanging, right? Including Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, the Holy Spirit is not going to change. The Word of God isn't going to change. Um, not a, a jot or tittle is going to fade away from that. But our eschatology, that's future and 
we don't have as clear of understanding about what's going to take place in the future. So we hold to that less firmly than we do other areas of theology. All right. Will somebody look up Acts 13.33 and then Hebrews 1 and 5. Who's got Acts 1333? Okay. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay. So. It was the second psalm before the chapters. Yep. Good job, Jerome. <laughs> All right, so again, begotten is to bring forth. So it's not that he came into existence at that point, but he, he took on flesh at that point. He was brought forth um, in that, that moment. And then Brit, Hebrews 1, um, read verse 2 and then jump down to verse 5. Okay. Um, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself. Did I read through? I'm sorry. That's okay. That's when, a good he, <laughs> when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right. So in verse 2, we see that he was appointed or ordained as the heir of all things. Um, and then down verse 5, um, looking back to Psalm 2, um, to which of the angels has he ever said, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or I have uh established you or I have brought you forth in the same kind of concept as appointing or ordaining that you would be heir of all things um, came into being at that point in time. Um, and then 5-5, five, five, you have that, Jerry? So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All right, so each one of those times that he's referred to as begotten, again, points back to Psalm 2. Um, when was Jesus begotten by the Father? That is quite a question. What kind of theology tied up in that one? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what day? <laughs> For him, today is all. Yeah. Again, we are not the same as God, right? He is completely otherly. He himself is completely set apart. And so we have to realize that he is speaking from a different position than, than we are. So when he says today, he's not talking this day, right? What is it? November 8th, 2020. Um, but he is omnipresent outside of time and space, transcendent over all time and matter. We're going to say something, Andy? Okay. All right. So let's take a look at that. Um, eternal generation. We just read that in Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. Didn't we? 
Um, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, we see the, the eternality of God, the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God, um, the fact that he is completely otherly. And then at birth, the, the incarnation. Let's look up those passages once again. So Luke 135, and I'm already here back in Hebrew, so I can grab that again. But, I've got Luke 135. All right, go for it. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. All right, so in... A, a specific sense that the incarnation he took on flesh and he was to be called the son of God um, and this is where we can get into some messy theology saying that he was forever the son of God functionally um, get into EFS the eternal functional subordination of the son was Jesus always um, subject to God in the same way that he was during the incarnation um, because that is his role, right? He is to, to honor and glorify the Father, and he subjects himself under the Father. But let's go back to, to last week, and that word singularity of the Trinity, there is but one God, right? Um, and we have our, our little triangle circle diagram we had up here on the board. Um, they are equal. There is equality with them. They are not each other. But to say that Jesus was always... Um, subject to the Father in the same way that he was during the Incarnation gets into some messy theology because he becomes less than God. Um, and he certainly isn't. What? You have something to add? Always. Feel free. No. No? <laughs> okay. Um, let's look at the baptism of, of Jesus. Luke 3.22 Will somebody look that up for us, please? And then let's grab these verses as well. We were just in Acts 13.33, right? Oh, yeah, I read that. Okay. Who's got Luke 3.22? I have it. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll get the, the Romans. All the people were baptized. Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right. These are all different points in which he's recognized. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he became the Son of God at the baptism, right? But he's declared the Son of God there. Um, Are you still in Acts, Melissa? Yes. Will you read that for us once again, please? Yes. This, or this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. All right. And then here in Romans 1.4, it uh, also speaks of him being declared the son by the resurrection. Um, so yeah. declared to be the son of God by the resurrection, with power by the resurrection from the dead. The spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. 
and that's in contradistinction to his um, being in the flesh, who, according to the flesh, he was a son of David, right? Um, but according to the Spirit, at the resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God. But we've already seen he was called the Son of God before that, um, at the incarnation, uh, really, eternally, in the baptism as well. Going back to Psalm 2, we stopped short of this verse, but the end of Psalm 2, it says, kiss the Son, S-O-N, so he's being declared the Son in Psalm 2 also, explicitly. Yep. All right, and so, again, the the point of emphasis that we can really get stuck up on is the, the functional subordination. So um, to to put himself in a place of humility underneath the Father, like we see in Philippians 2, uh, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. That took place at the incarnation. Um, but before that, he had the same glory that he had with the Father, right? John 17, 5, he prays, um, give to me the, return to me the glory that I shared with you before the earth was. Is that right? The earth was. Not, yeah. Um, so he is on the same level with the Father, and he uh, took on flesh, um, subtraction by addition, right? He he became less by taking on this, this flesh that... Um, he didn't have previously and so we'll get into some I think we're gonna get into some misunderstandings of the hypostatic union the the perfect joining together of the two natures of Christ he is 100% God and 100% flesh and when you start to, to misunderstand that that's where you get into some of the heresies that we were talking about last week um, they they go right along with it if you don't understand the, the nature of the three persons and the one being of God, um, you're in trouble. And in the same way, if you don't understand the two natures of the one person of Christ, you can get into quite a bit of trouble as well. Any thoughts on that? Yes? What about Proverbs 30? Um, verse 6. Talk about that. No, 4. Who has a sin who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established all the ends of the earth, what is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Hmm. Hmm. You mean Job? Is that Job? No, Proverbs. It's Proverbs. The Proverbs. Surely you know sounded very much like Job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Calling him to account. Huh. That's a good one, Jeremy. What is his name or his son's name? Does the NASB capitalize son? No. Nope. Interesting. Yeah. Shame on that. Yeah, well, the NASB 2020 just came out. Maybe that one does. That's Proverbs 30, <laughs> verse 4. There's too many changes. Good changes. 30, verse 4. Unnecessary changes. Yeah, there's a lot of both. So. <laughs> It says Jesus Christ. ESV? Oh, that's what, no, that's oh what the study notes. John MacArthur said. He said his son's name, Jesus Christ, and then it says cross reference John 1 1 13. Huh. The ESV Bible doesn't take that position, but MacArthur does. 
It's a hard man to argue with, but... It's a group of people to argue with, though. For sure. There is. Yeah, I wonder where that transition takes place. (laughs) What do you make of verse 2? 30 verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man. (laughs) And I do not have the understanding of a man. (laughs) Your life verse. Yeah, right over the pulpit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure, Jerry. Do you have a take on it? You were aware of it. Well, I've been aware of that a long time, but all the other descriptions, I mean, it's obviously talking about God. I mean, that's what he's saying. Um, Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. He's saying this. Humans, we are utterly stupid about who God really is. And then he lists all those attributes of him. And then he also acknowledges, I'm sure this is not, I don't know what is, but he doesn't. The plurality of God is, you know, was no common knowledge to him. Yeah. And he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll have to look into that a little bit more. All right, continuing on. So, monogene, uh translated the only begotten, so only one, means one and only, unique, and is used five times of Christ, each of which is in the Gospel of John. I, no, they're all offered by John. I think there's there's First John. Also, that uses monogamy in reference to Christ. Yeah, 1 John 4, you're right. So yeah, all from John. Uh, the beginning event is in the rearview mirror with this word. The focus is on the uniqueness of the begotten one. So it's all looking past tense. So again, um, looking at or reminding ourselves of what we looked at when we were looking at the, the resurrection, um, that he was declared with power by his resurrection from the dead to be the son of God. That's not when he became the son of God. Um, it's past tense, even from John's perspective, um, while Jesus was on the earth. So let's look up those passages. John 1, 14 through 18, 3, 16 through 18, and 4, verse 9 in 1 John. <sighs> Whoops. <laughs> All right, who's got John 1, 14 through 18? The Word became flesh. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and called out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior, because He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. This, 14 through 18? All right, so Jesus has explained or, or exegeted God. He is the only begotten. He is the unique and special one, the monogenes. Um, we see that 
phrase twice in John 3, 16 through 18. Who's got that for us? Can I read it from the NIV? Um, yeah, that's a good one. I like the, the way the NIV translates the monogamy. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. All right. So again there, it doesn't say only begotten, but one and only. Um, and I think yes, or the NIV is one of the only ones that down in verse 36 um, equates believe with obedience, um, whereas some other translations don't take that same understanding. So NIV got a couple things right in John chapter 3. Uh, he's the one and only son, unique and special. And then 1 John 4, 9. Yes, Jerry. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. All right. So gives a purpose statement there so that we might live through him. That's why he was sent into the world again. That's at the point of the incarnation. Jesus existed before that, but not in flesh. And so he sent him in the flesh as the only begotten or one and only um, so that we might live through him because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so using that NIV translation, when you come to that phrase, if that helps you have clarity, then do that in your mind. One and only is uh, equivalent with only begotten. When it says only begotten, he wasn't born in into existence in the sense that um, a Jehovah's Witness might tell you. Do you guys remember what what fallacy that would fall under that we looked at last week? What Trinitarian fallacy? To say that Jesus isn't God, but he was created. He was, he was made at that point in time. Yeah, it argues against his eternality and the equality of God. But we looked at Trinitarian fallacies and misunderstandings. It's named after a fourth century dude. Arianism. Yeah, Arianism, right? Um, to say he isn't God, he isn't equal with God. And Jehovah's Witnesses are really modern day Arians. Um, and they will say, yes, he is a God in a sense, but he isn't equivalent with the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament which is troublesome, to say the least. All right. Um, this is from the Nicene Creed. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, to add clarification, right? Light of light, very God of very God. And then here, this important phrase, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father. And it was because of that guy, Arius, that they took such great painstaking lengths to make sure that it was clarified um, that he is God of God, light of light, begotten yet not made. And Arius wasn't in the minority when he had that position. Um, 
the majority of the people were behind him and thinking, okay, well, he's of a, a different substance than the father. So to say that he is the same as the father would be heretical. But just because you're in the minority or majority doesn't make you right. So we're thankful for the Nicene Creed and other creeds that help establish that important fact. All right. Uh, this is a different page, right? No. My computer's skipping again. All right. Let's see. There we go. Jesus preferred to call himself Son of Man. That was his favorite use or title for himself most often in the Gospels, though he both referred to himself as and affirmed the title Son of God. So he never denied that he was the Son of God. Again, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He affirmed that and he said, yeah, it's not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but you know this because God has given it to you to know. So he didn't deny that he was Son of God, but more often he called himself Son of Man. And we'll look at that title next week. We often think of a modern Western son in Son of God, fake news, right? <laughs> that term's going to be outdated here pretty soon. Um, so, again, we can't take. Or, or Romans. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes. Um, we can't take our, our modern 21st century understanding of an idea and interpose that onto first century authors when they're writing. We need to seek to understand the author's original intent as he was writing to his original audience. How would they have understood Son when Jesus said that he was the Son of God? Um, we got a couple of passages here we can look up. Matthew 26. Will somebody grab that? And I can grab John 10, 36 through 38. Jesus calls himself Son of God in three chapters in John, John chapter 5, 8, and 10. And when he does that, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. So those are good chapters to remember. Remember the response that people had when he called himself the Son of God. And we can infer from their response that they understood that he wasn't just saying that he was a son in the sense that we understand Son of God. All right, who's got Matthew 26? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I place you under oath by the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have, you have said it yourself, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, that's one of those in-your-face verses. Um, you've said it, and you're going to see the Son of Man. So we'll look at that again next week when we're talking about the Son of Man, because that is a cool verse. Um, but he didn't deny that he was the Son of God. Here in John 10, 36 through 38, um, I'll start in 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Um, another great passage to go to with Jehovah's Witnesses, though they'll take a completely different understanding of it. But you just trust the Holy Spirit to work and to reveal to them. Um, 
Let's see. In Jewish usage of the term son of, it didn't generally imply any subordination, but rather equality and identity of nature. The name son of encouragement, spoken of Barnabas in Acts 4.36, doubtless means the encourager. Sons of thunder of John and James in Mark 3 probably means thunderous men. So not saying that they're less than, but equality with. Again, that's why they picked up stones to stone him. They said... Well, you're claiming equality with God. You are blaspheming when you call yourself the son of God. They had a different understanding of what son meant in their tradition, in their culture, than what we do today. Son of man, especially as applied to Christ in Daniel 7, and consistently in the New Testament, essentially means the representative man. Thus, for Christ to say, I am the son of God, as he did in John 10, was understood by his contemporaries as identifying himself as God, equal with the Father, in an unqualified sense. So that's how they would have heard it and understood it, and that's how we should read it and interpret it when we were reading Son of God in the Bible. This is Again. my thought for thought or whatever you call it, dynamic Yeah, dynamic equivalent. Dynamic equivalent are so popular. I, I think it's one of the reasons why it was because you can actually say what the thought, what it actually means, rather than what the verbiage of the transliteration is or whatever. But to a certain degree, but you have to interpret with that too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we've got to stay balanced in yes. in what we're using. So to have a, a variety of translations at your fingertips when you're going through and studying is Context. beneficial. All you need is Greek and Hebrew. That's all. We should all just learn Greek and Hebrew and we'll be better off. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts on Son of God? Yeah. All right. Um, I thought this was going to come up under Son of God, but it didn't. But Hebrews 11:17 um, has another rendering of. Uh, Monogenes, talking about the, the one and only Son of God. Hebrews 11:17. I'll read that to you real quick. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. We know that Isaac, again, wasn't the only begotten in the sense that he was without sibling, because he had Ishmael who was before him. But he was the unique son of Abraham, the son of promise, a special son. Um, also, um, a, a different place where we can understand that monogenes is, is used differently is um, looking at Luke 3.38. That talks of Adam being the son of God, right? Um, and then Galatians 3.26 speaks of believers as being the Son of God. Or John 1, 12, I think, says that those who believe in him could be called children of God. And so only begotten has that that meaning, that connotation of unique and special. We need to remember that and realize that, especially when talking with others who don't have a correct understanding of Jesus being God himself in the flesh. All right. Any last thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Next week we'll look at Son of Man 
um, son of David, firstborn, Alpha Omega, um, and then some Old Testament pictures and types and shadows of Christ. So that'll be fun. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you again for who you are, that you are Lord, that you are King of the universe, that you are um, above all. You are indeed transcendent, that you are the, the monogenes, the one and only, the unique Son of God. We thank you for um, the, the many men and women who went before us. Um, think of, again, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, those people who struggled and strived to have a better understanding of you. We thank you for them. We pray that you would help us to constantly be sharpening our understanding of you, that you would be sharpening us, that we would become more and more like you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified for throughout the rest of the service and um, that we would be in a a place to to worship and exalt you. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen. Amen.